We come this morning to the last of Jesus' seven messages to the churches. His final message is to the church in Laodicea. This is the only one of the seven where Jesus has no words of commendation. When we began looking at these messages, and we looked at his words to Ephesus, Jesus said that particular church was in danger of being shut down. He threatened to come and remove their lampstand. And yet, even in that church in Ephesus, he still found some things to command. But Jesus has no words of commendation for Laodicea. We're going to see that he speaks to them very severely. He rebukes them sternly. But we're also going to see this is a merciful severity from Jesus. His rebuke has a loving purpose. And if you and I this morning feel some of the severity of his message, then that will be part of Jesus' love and mercy to us as well. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. In the church Bible, it's page 1236, and in the large print, 1917. And we'll read together from chapter 3, verse 14, down to the end of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. This passage has two sections. Verses 14 to 17 give the Lord's assessment of this church. Then verses 18 to 22 give his invitation to the church. So first of all, let's look at the Lord's assessment of the church in Laodicea. Jesus begins by reminding them who it is that's assessing them. 
Jesus is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. All through the Bible, God's people are called to be faithful witnesses to God. Their lives and their words are to tell the truth about God. And Jesus is the one who fulfilled that calling perfectly. He is the faithful witness. Well, why is that important here? It's important because it means Jesus is qualified to assess the state of these witnesses in Laodicea. Jesus is the benchmark of what it means to be a faithful witness. He also describes himself as the ruler of God's creation. Or it could be translated, the beginning of God's creation. The word has both senses included in it. God the Son was there at the beginning of creation, and he has authority over creation. But there's even more to it than that. Because later on in this book, we're going to be told God is making everything new. He's bringing about a new creation. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of that. And he is the ruler of God's new creation too. And if we ask, well, where do we see his new creation today? The answer is, we see it in the church. The fellowship of men and women who've been given new life through faith in Jesus. That's God's new creation. It's not finished, but it's in progress. Jesus was the beginning of it when he rose from the dead. And he is the ruler of it. He is Lord of the church. That's important because Jesus has some severe things to say to these people in Laodicea. But they need to know from the outset, these are not the words of some opinionated outsider. This is not someone whose words they can just shrug off. No, Jesus has the qualifications and the authority to assess this church. And this is his assessment. They're useless, disgusting, and they're deluded. Look at verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I used to read verse 15 and think, Why does Jesus wish we were hot or cold? Maybe being spiritually lukewarm isn't great, but surely it's better than being spiritually cold. But actually, I was completely misunderstanding Jesus' point. The background to what he says here comes from Laodicea's water supply. Six miles away from Laodicea was the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis had its own hot springs. People would go there for the good of their health. The hot water at Hierapolis was useful. And 10 miles from Laodicea was the city of Colossae. Colossae was supplied by cool, pure drinking water from a mountain stream. 
The cold water at Colossae was useful. But Laodicea didn't have its own water supply. They had to pipe in water from elsewhere. And that water arrived neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. It contained chemicals, and it was just about undrinkable. The Roman writer Cicero said it was the foulest water in the whole Roman Empire. If you tried to drink it, it made you sick. The water in Laodicea was useless. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It's not a question of being spiritually hot, cold, or lukewarm. It's about being useful or useless to God. That's the contrast. The church in Laodicea has become like the city's water supply. Neither hot nor cold, and therefore useless. And Jesus says to the church, you have the same effect on me as your city's water supply does on you. You make me sick. You're disgusting, Jesus says. I want to spew you out of my mouth. Well, what is it about this church that provokes such a violent reaction from Jesus? What makes it useless and disgusting? So far, Jesus hasn't pointed us to anything specific. But the context does suggest why they're disgusting and useless. It's because they've simply blended in so well with the society around them, they've become indistinguishable from the society around them. That's suggested by the word lukewarm. Hot water is useful because it's a different temperature from what we're used to. That's why a hot bath does us good. And cold water is useful because on a hot day it refreshes us by being different. But lukewarm water has adjusted to its surroundings. It has conformed to the temperature of its surroundings. And a lukewarm church has conformed to its surroundings. People in a lukewarm church watch the same stuff as everybody else. They go on the same websites as everybody else. They chase after the same things in life as everybody else. They conduct their relationships just like everybody else. In fact, they've succeeded so well at blending in They're not making any kind of impact on the culture around them. They're exactly like the culture around them. And Jesus says, what good is that to me? I called you to be salt and light in your culture. I called you to give it a different flavor through your lives. To stand out from the darkness that's around you. Jesus says to the church, you're supposed to be making a positive difference, showing people a different way to live. Your lives are supposed to testify to the difference I make in people's lives. But the message people get from your lives, Laodiceans, is that following me actually makes no difference at all. 
You're useless. You disgust me. Verse 17 gives more evidence that the main issue here is how well the church has blended in. Jesus says to them, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. We saw last week the city of Philadelphia had been rocked by several major earthquakes. And in fact, Laodicea was the same. But whereas Philadelphia became known as a weak city, Laodicea was determined to show its strength. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that after the earthquake in Laodicea, the Roman emperor offered them disaster relief funds. But the city turned down the emperor's offer. And Tacitus wrote, Laodicea was laid in ruins by an earthquake, but recovered by its own resources, without assistance from ourselves. That was about 30 years before the book of Revelation was written. Laodicea was a wealthy city. And the people prided themselves in being self-sufficient. They didn't need the emperor's help. There were plaques on various buildings around the city saying this was rebuilt at our own expense. That's what the city was like. And this Laodicean church that blends in so well with its surroundings, the church has taken on that self-sufficient attitude. Clearly the members of this church are wealthy. And it's highly likely that wealth has come from blending in with their surroundings. A few weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' words to Smyrna, we learned about trade guilds. They were basically workers' unions where false gods were worshipped. And it seems likely the believers in Smyrna were poor because they wouldn't join those trade guilds. They wouldn't make the compromise. And as a result, they weren't climbing very high in society. Not in terms of wealth and career anyway. But here in Laodicea, the fact that these believers are wealthy, that implies they are making compromises to get rich. Now certainly sometimes it is possible for Christians to rise high in society and still keep their integrity intact. Sometimes it's possible. But these Laodiceans don't live in a time and place like that. In the society they live in, you have to compromise to rise. And not only have these people risen, they've got that self-sufficient attitude. When you're financially comfortable, it's the easiest thing in the world to live as if you don't need God. Even for Christians it's easy. We might not deny God, but very often we can get through the week just fine without giving God a moment's thought. That's what self-sufficiency is. We don't need to ask God for our daily bread. 
because we've got enough bread. And not just enough for today and tomorrow, we could survive a few weeks or months on the bread in our freezer and our savings in the bank. So if we pray at all, there's very little sense we're actually depending on God. There's certainly no desperate pleading with God to provide for us. We've provided very well for ourselves, thanks. We don't have all that much to pray about, really. Now, you and I might not live in obvious luxury, but we can still end up saying in our own little way, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Really? I've got life under control. Thank you. That's where the church in Laodicea is at. But look what Jesus says to them in the second half of verse 17. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, Poor, blind, and naked. These people have material wealth. They're succeeding in society. But Jesus says, if you think that makes you truly rich, you're deluded. Jesus says, I look at you and I see a pitiful sight. Your compromise And your pursuit of success in this world have turned you into spiritual paupers. And the worst thing is, you don't even realize it. You're so impressed by yourselves and you think, I should be too. But you're useless to me. You're making no impression on the world around you. Because you're no different from the world around you. Jesus says, if you could only see how sickening that is to me. He says, you look at yourselves and you think you've got it made. I look at you and think I'm going to vomit. Jesus' words are severe. These are harsh words to hear. These people thought it was all going great for them. But the Lord of the church has just kicked over their tables. He's just pulled the rug out from under them. And you and I will not go long in the Christian life before Jesus does the same to us. And if we ask why Jesus can be so severe with us, the answer is he loves us too much to let us settle for this world's applause and this world's wealth and this world's definition of success. He loves us too much to leave us chasing after those things and to leave us satisfied with those things. C.S. Lewis said that as human beings we are far too easily pleased. 
We settle for things that are passing. We settle for counterfeit pleasures, counterfeit treasure. Instead of the ultimate joy Jesus offers to us. And so in his mercy and love, Jesus is willing to confront us and rebuke us. And his purpose is to call us to something better. That's what he does here to the Laodiceans. Having shown them the state they're in, he then gives them his invitation to true wealth, wholeness, and relationship. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so that you can see. The city of Laodicea was known for its banks, its clothing industry, and its medical school. The medical school had produced a very successful cure for eye infections. But here Jesus says, never mind the banks. I'll give you riches that are eternally secure. Never mind the designer clothes. I'll give you white robes. I'll cover your shame and your impurity. I'll make you fit for the presence of a holy God. And never mind the eye ointment. I'll open your eyes so you can truly see, so you can understand what's really valuable and really worth living for. You'll notice Jesus says, I counsel you to buy these things from me. And we know already these people have money. But what Jesus is offering can't be bought with money. And yet, there is a price we have to pay for these things. We have to give up our ideas that we can earn or deserve God's riches. We can't. These riches are for those who will kneel before the cross and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I admit that I stand before you wretched, poor, blind, and naked. I have nothing to offer you. My best deeds are like dirty rags. Only your mercy can save me. The price of receiving these things from Jesus is that we have to humble ourselves. Maybe you've never come to that point. Maybe you're still hoping your own efforts will be enough. Maybe you're hoping that on Judgment Day, God will say, well, I'm looking over your file here, and I have to say it's not outstanding, but I'll give you a pass. It doesn't work that way. 
On Judgment Day, the Father is not going to say, what did you do? He's going to say, what is your relationship to my son? I sent him to die for your salvation, to pay your debt. The Father is going to say, did you trust in his work? Did you take him as your Lord? Or did you insist on sticking to your own plan to try and please me all by yourself? Maybe some of us here need to repent of our self-sufficiency for the very first time. But maybe others of us are like the Laodiceans. We know the gospel message very well by trusting in Christ. We even agree with it in theory. For goodness sake, we're members of a church. Of course we agree with it. But we're not living like we believe the gospel. Our lives would show that what we're really trusting in is ourselves. Our own intelligence. Our assets. Those are the things we're really leaning on in this life. And we're not really thinking about the next life. Maybe some of us would have to admit that we are what Jesus would call lukewarm. We blend in so well with this world, there's almost no evidence we belong to another world. And so if there's even a hint of that in our lives, let's allow Jesus' severe words to challenge us. And then let's hear his invitation to us in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In verse 19, Jesus says, I'm not pronouncing final judgment on you here. I'm calling you to get serious because I love you. Remember, Jesus is talking to his church here. And in verse 20, this picture of Jesus standing outside knocking on the door It's the church that has shut him out. He's not talking to unbelievers here. These words are for Christians who are shutting out their Lord. And they're probably not doing it by denying his name. They're just paying no attention to him. They're too busy making money and climbing career ladders idolizing relationships and amusement. And as a result, they're living in spiritual poverty. God's people. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. While the lover of their souls is shut out of their lives. Jesus says to us as a church, 
whether you're a little or a long way down this road, hear my voice today. Open the door and I will eat with you. That is one of the greatest pictures of intimacy and fellowship. Sharing a meal face to face. Wouldn't we love that kind of fellowship with our Savior? He's offering it to us. He says, I have so much for you. So much of myself to give you. He has so much to give us today and in the future. Look what he says in verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And notice how this ends in verse 22. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may have noticed as we've gone through these, all seven messages to the churches contain this exact same challenge. It reminds us these messages are for all the churches at all times in history. The battles these seven churches are called to are battles the church always needs to fight. These are the ways the enemy of our souls loves to attack us. Satan doesn't always go for outright persecution. He uses plenty of subtle strategies against us too. And in these seven messages, Jesus is showing us where we need to conquer. It might be lovelessness in our own hearts. It might be a fear of persecution. Maybe we need to fight a tendency to let sin spread unchallenged in the church. Maybe the battle we face is to just wake up from complacency, from thinking none of this could ever happen to us. Or maybe we have a very different kind of struggle, We need to fight to see beyond our own weakness and failure. We need to take confidence in Jesus' power. And maybe the battle we face is the one we've seen this morning. The battle to see past our own self-sufficiency. And here Jesus' reminder that if we drift from him, we're drifting into miserable poverty no matter what popularity we might have or what stuff we might gather around us. These are the calls to war we've heard in Revelation 2 and 3. And they come here at the start of the book because the rest of the book is going to pull back the curtain on big transcendent realities. Next week we're going to see the throne room of heaven. Later on, we're going to see mortal combat in the heavens and the earth. But right here at the start, we are being told, you and I are not spectators in all of this. 
We have to take sides in this war of the ages that's going on. We have to choose whose applause we want most. This world's or God's. We have to choose which treasure we want most. Treasure now or treasure in heaven. We have to choose whose friendship we want most. The friendship of this world or the friendship of Jesus Christ. We have to take sides. And so before we sing, we're going to take a moment quietly to respond to Jesus' words. We're going to do that where we're sitting. And as we prepare to do that, listen again to these words from Jesus. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Think about that, what that means for you in your own specific situation. And then respond to Jesus quietly just where you're sitting.